Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour, this for the first half hour, is Una McDonald, who is an international financial regulatory expert, author. She's a former member of Parliament in the United Kingdom and an advisor on financial regulatory matters. She's just come out with a new book called Holding Bankers to Account, A Decade of Market Manipulation, Regulatory Failures, and Regulatory Reforms. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Una. Thank you very much. I'm, it's a pleasure to be on your show. So you've done uh, several books. Uh, you did two books we spoke about previously, one about Lehman Brothers and one about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, why did you feel necessary to do this uh, new book called Holding Bankers to Account, which is talking about the manipulation of benchmarks, such as the uh, London Interbank Offered Rate? I think there are two different reasons for that. One is holding bankers, actually holding bankers to account, that is, senior bankers. Because in all the other books that I have written, it is quite clear that senior bankers, um, how should we put it, seem to get away with everything that they've done wrong, scot-free, whereas it's the people lower down the pecking order who end up paying the price. In the case of market, the kind of manipulation involved in LIBOR and in Forex and foreign exchange, yes, you read even more recently in the newspapers that this or that trader has been punished, been sent to prison or fined or have lost their jobs. Usually they've lost their jobs as well. So I thought it was time to examine what exactly they had done, who should have been held responsible, and in the end, how to do that, how to hold senior bankers responsible. So let's go back to the basics of what's involved here. There's an international rate called the London Interbank Bar Offered Rate, or LIBOR. Um, So what is LIBOR used for, and why is it so important? Oh, LIBOR is extremely important. Uh, Initially, it was just used for syndicated bank loans. But as the years went by from the 1970s onwards, uh, derivative contracts became more and more important. And so when you enter into a derivative contract, there's going to be a close-off date for that contract. And so you use this rate set in those days by the commercial banks alone, saying each day, we are willing to lend at each other at such and such a rate of interest. And the contract would be tied to whatever LIBOR was on the day when the contract had to be fulfilled. So it affects a very, very wide range of contracts. Mortgages, for example, would be included in that list. So it sounds like a very complex way that LIBOR, the rate on LIBOR is set every day. It's not one person somewhere. It's many, many banks kind of putting in bids and so on. So how is it possible for something that complicated to be manipulated? Um, and was it manipulated to make it go up or make it go down? Exactly how was it manipulated? Oh, up or down, depending on the nature of the contracts that the traders had. When you, when you read the book, you will see that actually it was manipulated in the simplest possible way. Um, just through traders in different banks sending emails to each other 
or sending uh, or discussing what the rate should be on chat rooms. So what I've recorded in the book is some of those conversations which obviously derived from the uh, financial regulatory authorities. So uh, one trader in particular who's now residing at Her Majesty's Pleasure, pleasure as we say in the UK, uh, Tom Hayes, I think was the leader. And he had contact amongst the traders in a number of leading banks, Barclays, UBS, Royal Bank of Scotland, um, Deutsche Bank, just to name a few examples. That's all public information. And they would talk to each other each day about the rate that they would submit. So they would say, uh, okay, I want the rate to be, uh, let's say, 5.4% rate of interest today. They would talk about it amongst themselves. Was it going to benefit a number of them? And then they would each agree to set that particular rate, which was then recorded on a daily basis by the British Bankers Association uh, on a kind of average where they excluded the highest rate and the lowest rate and took an average. And that was the rate for that day. That was public information, published daily, so anyone else who wanted to know what the LIBOR rate was would simply check on a daily basis and use that in all of their contracts. And it's very interesting because they only had to alter the rate a little bit by what we call one or two basis points, but on a derivative contract, that could make the contract worth an awful lot more money. And they rewarded each other. What I found intriguing was that the rewards were so so small that if one trader helped or group of traders helped another out, the one who needed the help would say, oh, I'll send you over a bottle of champagne today. And I'd say, only for yeah. that? <laughs> Cheating on the whole process. But of course, it wasn't only for that. They would all benefit from the money they made on those particular contracts and the bonuses that they earned. So these were making more money for the banks. At whose expense? If if the people who were manipulating were the winners, who were the losers? Who were paying more than they should have been? Uh, Well, that's an interesting question because on each daily rate, as I said, it was used by a very wide range of contracts that would be part of mutual funds, but also part of mortgages. So there would always be winners and losers. Borrowers could be paying a lower rate of interest than they otherwise would have done if the rate had been recorded in the proper way. Savers in mutual funds, for example, could be amongst the losers because they would get less by way of returns on their savings. So always winners and losers, but which group were winners and which group were losers would vary from day to day. So supposedly these banks have all kinds of controls and risk management techniques and they're being watched by regulators all the time. Um, And there's a lot at stake, billions of dollars at stake. Was this just very bold and they never thought they'd get caught or how, how did this go on for so long without coming out that they were doing something manipulative? 
Right. Now, that was the real problem. As I mentioned the words, the British Bankers Association, that was a trade association. And as part of the historical development, it was the British Bankers Association that recorded each day's trades. As time went on and the use of LIBOR changed, it didn't occur to them or indeed to the regulators who in the UK did not have the responsibility then of regulating and supervising LIBOR. It had kind of grown up over time and it hadn't occurred to anybody. One, that you could manipulate uh, the LIBOR rate and two, the importance of tiny changes in interest rates. As the governor of the Bank of England at the time, Mervyn King, put it, we would be looking for large rises in interest rates, not noticing just one or two basis points, as they're called, very tiny movements in interest rates. So, but the British Bankers Association was just a trade association. It actually didn't have the powers or the staff to regulate LIBOR. And now that is partly why I say this is something for which the senior bankers themselves should have been responsible. How did they get away with it? Um, well, I guess the senior bankers were at the very least negligent in only being happy that their traders were earning a lot of money and that they had some apparently star traders who were very good at their job. Also, when I looked at the setup, um, the traders section of a bank should have been in quite a different room from the submitters, that is, the bankers who are responsible without reference to the traders for submitting the rate for the day. So the organization of the banks, lack of oversight, lack of regulation and supervision by the regulatory authorities in the UK, it was not their responsibility and failures on the part of the British Bankers Association. So it's a combination of all of those elements. Do you think that the top bankers at these major banks did know that manipulation was going on and specifically did not report it or did not cause any trouble because the banks were making so much money? I think I would say that they could very easily have known and ought to have known but the organizational structure did not make that immediately obvious. Then, as time went on and we move into the shortly before and during the financial crisis, which, as you know, is when um, the U.S. newspapers started picking up the, uh, the manipulation of LIBOR, um, what they were afraid of then is that if the rates went up too high, then the assumption would be, what's wrong with that bank if they can only borrow at such, borrow or lend at a higher level? That must signify that the bank is in trouble. Uh, now, I will argue that, that they could have known and should have known in two ways. First of all, as I've mentioned, 
the traders emailed each other. The, they had the electronic chat rooms. All of those would, of course, have been accessible by the bank. They were internal emails. So that should not have been a problem for the banks to access those. And from the extracts that I've taken, you'll see it's perfectly obvious. It couldn't be plainer that they were trying to manipulate the bank rate. The plot was not hidden. The conspiracy was not veiled in any way. So it was perfectly obvious what they were doing. Uh, so they should have had systems in place and should, should have had their compliance officers knowing what was going on. It was quite clear, actually, that some compliance officers did know what was going on and uh, turned a blind eye to it. And the Never. other way in which... Yeah. So that's the ways in which you should know. Yes. Very good. All right. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest for this half hour is Una McDonald. She's an expert on international finance and talking here about the massive manipulation of the London Interbank Offered Rate, LIBOR. Her new book is called Holding Bankers to Account, A Decade of Market Manipulation, Regulatory Failures, and Regulatory Reforms. You can see more about her at her website, which is unamcdonald.com, and certainly get the book at amazon.com and a place like that. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. Attention heroes, current and former firefighters, law enforcement, military, medical, or educational professionals. Heroes can receive rewards averaging over $2,500 when they buy, sell, or refinance a home. Heroes come first. Along with the Homes for Heroes is the nation's largest hero reward program. Their mission is to provide extraordinary savings to heroes who provide extraordinary services to our nation and its communities every day. Learn how you can purchase a home for no down payment, no closing costs, and get money back at closing. Find out how you can own for less than you may pay for rent. Get your hero rewards at heroescomefirst.com. That's heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, comefirst.com, 888-437-6114. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is Una McDonald. Uh, she is an uh, international finance regulatory expert and author of several books. She wrote a book about Lehman Brothers, The Fall of Lehman Brothers, one about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Her latest one is called Holding Bankers to Account, A Decade of Market Manipulation, Regulatory Failures, and Regulatory Reforms. Her website, unamcdonald.com. Welcome back to the show, Una. Thank you. So I just want to zero in a little bit more on how all this manipulation affected uh, American consumers, borrowers, and savers. Let's start with the mortgage side. So quite a few people have their mortgages based on LIBOR. So you're saying that a lot of people with mortgages ended up paying more in interest than they would have had it not been manipulated. Is that correct? They could have done. The problem for both sides that lots of um, class action cases were launched in America, but you have a problem. The problem is, how do you prove that the LIBOR rate at any particular point in time would have been different from what it actually turned out to be? So you're trying to prove a hypothetical, and that is the problem. So most of the class action cases which were pursued with great vigor in in the U.S. actually failed for that reason. And yeah. then you have, you have, in theory, you have another problem that the savers could have benefited. If the borrowers were paying more, the savers were also benefiting. So what were you to do without the winners and losers? I would say, um, okay, you can look up the class action cases. You can look at fast press. None have succeeded. And that's the reason why none have succeeded. So I would say to your listeners, very annoying to hear this, but please don't lose any sleep over it. Because there's nothing that could be proved either way. And uh, let's say if you're a borrower and a saver, <laughs> you could have been a winner and a loser at the same time. I see. And then also this was going on in the foreign exchange market, the U.S. dollar versus the British pound or the euro. Was it the same kind of manipulation or was it different from the uh, manipulation of the LIBOR? It basically the same in that traders were colluding with each other. It worked a little differently and probably had really, frankly, a very limited effect on people changing their dollars into pounds or euros for going on holiday, for example. Usually, uh, the banks would offer a client, a customer with a very large amount of money who wanted to change to pay for imports, for example, Um, running into millions of dollars. Then you would talk to your, your, um, your bank and you would enter what was called a stop loss account. You would say, I need this money to pay for such and such on a particular day. This is the exchange rate I would like to have. Against that Against the background for that, the exchange rates are changing so quickly nowadays 
30 times faster than blinking your eye, that that could in a way raise the chances of your hitting upon the right exchange rate for you at the right time. Okay, so there you are, you're a customer, you've got an awful lot of money that you wish to change from dollars into some other currency. Now, what happened then would be that the traders would phone each other up and say, I've got a big order today, I'm hoping that the rate will be such and such. And the others would discuss what clients they had, what kind of rates their clients wanted. Uh, They may sell some in advance to either raise the rate or to lower the rate, depending on which direction the rate was going. Um, They would collude together to do that and hopefully get the rate that they wanted in order to fulfill their client's order. Sometimes they would aim to get a better rate than their client actually wanted because that brought more money for themselves as traders and for the bank. So, so if they fulfilled an order, if they fulfilled an order that yep. for client, they would get yep. their purse to be pr- profited or get a commission uh, for doing that, is exactly. what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Also, you, you, bonuses. Yeah, bonuses as well, right. You also said this yeah. possibly was happening in the gold and silver markets. For many years, the London gold fix is kind of where gold is at any particular time. Is there evidence of uh, collusion and manipulation in the gold and silver markets as well? Uh, there was. It was more difficult to detect. And the nature of the, of the way in which the gold price is fixed has also changed substantially. But it used to be done over the telephone with a small group of dealers in London. And they would uh, receive information from various traders and they would fix the rate between themselves. Those were representatives of the larger banks. It was a process that dated from after World War One, first being carried out by face-to-face meetings, then it was carried out by telephone and subsequently carried out by telephone until the whole thing was reformed and that comes in with the new benchmark regulations that are established for fixing the gold price, the silver price, um, exchange rate, and also LIBOR, the London Interbank offer rate. So much has changed since those days. I searched and searched for a lot more evidence of gold and silver price manipulation, which if you Google, you find that everyone uh, is complaining about that all the time when you actually come to search the evidence there's very little evidence that the regulators were able to discover. Do you think there are other things like this being manipulated today that the regulators have not caught on to yet? What might that be? I think what we're looking at here, and we're really only discussing the regulation now of benchmarks. Um, so two things are happening. First of all, a reform of the way in which the benchmarks are actually established. And secondly, on the part of the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England to replace LIBOR with other benchmarks 
There is a problem, however, with the other benchmarks, not a problem of manipulation at all. It's perfectly clear what they are, but they're only overnight rates. And it's more difficult to apply those to long-term contracts. The value of LIBOR has always been that if they offer long-term contracts, anything from a month, three months, six months, or years. So I don't think that there are other benchmarks around. Um, these are the major benchmarks that are involved in so much trading and major reforms have been underway as to how those benchmarks are established. At the end of the book, you have a list of all the fines that all the banks yes. paid to the British and to the Federal Reserve and all these regulatory agencies. Yes. What, what was the impact on the banks? Did people lose their jobs? This was a horrible thing for the banks. Their profits went way down. I mean, what was the impact of this huge millions and millions of dollars of fines over all this on many, many banks across both the U.S. and Europe? Well, this is what I think is wrong, you see, because when you find the bank, as I said, the only people that lost their jobs were the traders who were clearly guilty because you had all the email and electronic chat rooms evidence to establish that. No one else lost their jobs. The fine on the bank, and I particularly object to the banks themselves being fined, and you're quite right, we're talking about billions of dollars, who ends up paying for those? Actually, because you're increasing the costs of the banks doing their business, I maintain that it is customers of the banks and also pension funds, mutual funds and so on. Why? Because it affects the share price of the banks and, as you know, most people do not invest in a, a particular bank or a range of banks by themselves. They invest through a mutual fund or through savings in their pension funds or they are receiving their pensions. So I maintain that it's all those groups who are actually affected by the fines on the banks, not the bank itself. Yeah. This, this whole manipulation story kind of feeds this uh, uh, <laughs> narrative, I guess you might say, that the little guy doesn't have a chance against the big guys. They're manipulating all this money with all these complicated things. This is the same true with trading on stocks today with high-frequency trading. Is that part of the impact of all this, is the kind of feeding of the, the narrative that the little guy doesn't have a chance in the financial markets? Well, I think that's why I wrote the last chapter of the book, because I want the big guys to be caught and punished personally, so that the little guy, as you rightly say, has a much better chance. That's why it's called holding senior bankers to account. In the UK, uh, the system of regulating and supervising banks has been changed in this rather important way. Each senior banker, that's a very senior executive, has to shut to sign what is called what is called a duty of responsibility. A document, clearly signed, public document, which says, I am responsible for this particular area of the bank's activities. If something goes wrong, I ought to have known about it. 
That means that if something goes wrong, for example, if these manipulations had occurred with this particular system in place in the UK, um, then uh, the senior banker himself would have been taken to court. You said that you were responsible for ensuring that this trading was done properly. The only... Um, the only way in which the senior banker can uh, deal with those charges is to say, I took all reasonable steps. You would have to state what those reasonable steps are in great detail to ensure that trading was done according to the rules. The kind of collusion that I've talked about, especially in relation to Forex, is already against the rules in America and with all other regulators. Okay. But I want man at the top to be held responsible. He is the one to lose his job. He is the one to go off to prison. And we'll see what happens. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you so much, Una. Um, if people want to find out more, uh, the, the book is called Holding Bankers to Account, A Decade of Market Manipulation, Regulatory Failures, and Regulatory Reforms. You can sort of get it at Amazon. Una's website is unamcdonald.com. You can also say things about her previous books, about Lehman Brothers, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac, and others as well. Thanks so much for being a great guest on the Money Answer Show, Una. Great pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. All right. Thanks very much. We'll be back after this with our next guest, Ashley Michele. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. 
Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Be sure to like the Voice America Business Channel on Facebook. You'll find out about up-to-the-minute business happenings and get ideas from entrepreneurs and business professionals. Search Voice America Business or click the like button under the player and stay ahead of the curve. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at VoiceAMBusiness. Again, that's at VoiceAMBusiness. And stay current. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is Ashley Mitchakay. She is the CEO at True North Retirement Advisors, uh, based near Portland, Oregon. Uh, she is a specialist in retirement planning and particularly helping small business owners exit their businesses successfully. Uh, welcome to the show, Ashley. Nice to be with you. Thank you, Jordan. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's just get a little bit of your background in forming your firm and uh, how you got to where you are now. Yeah, so uh, I actually started as a financial advisor straight out of college, and uh, I joined my dad um, when I was 22 years old, had no idea what I was doing, Um, and my dad and I actually worked together at big firms for about 10 years before we decided to launch True North, and that was a pretty big undertaking, but it was a lot of fun as well. Um, and we kind of knew from the beginning, we're both very entrepreneurial. So we knew that having our own firm was really the right step for us because we could do um, the kind of work that our clients were asking of us in the way that best aligned with our values. But um, I, I will say the most interesting thing about starting a business, and it's all exciting, but we did it when my son was three months old, which is probably the worst idea ever. I would never <laughs> recommend doing that. <laughs> so one area you're specializing in is helping small business owners to successfully execute ex- exit uh, their businesses and sell. Why is that something of particular interest to you? Um, Yeah, that's a great question. And my background is actually in 401k consulting. And um, what happened about back in 2013, so about six years ago, um, I have a number of small business owners where I work with them on their 401k plans. And they tend to be smaller plans where the primary person I'm dealing with is is the business owner or the CFO or, you know, someone in that role. And what happened in this one uh, 401k plan that I was working with is the owner had a died suddenly of a heart attack overnight. And this was a third generation business. And, but what ended up happening is because the business sort of revolved around him, he had no succession plan. He had no one who could come in and step up and help. Um, 
when he died suddenly, it was catastrophic for his business, his employees, even his own family. Um, his wife, actually, his grieving wife had to come in and run the business with zero experience, zero experience in the industry and the business. And then they kind of limped along for a couple of years before a competitor bought them for way less than what they were actually worth. And so I watched all of this fall apart from the sidelines. And I kind of said to myself, never again, I need to start having these conversations with clients because I don't think anybody else really is. You know, a lot of times the CPA or an attorney might be involved in the exit planning process, but a lot of times business owners are kind of on their own and they have to be a bit more proactive about seeking this this help out when it comes to exiting their business. So uh, from that day forward, I resolved to, to incorporate this more into what we do for our clients and it's just grown and become more and more central to what we do um, for, for our business owner clients. So what are some of the universal steps that business owners should take to exit their business and over what time period should they start planning that? Um, the best the best answer I could give is start at the beginning, start with the end in mind. In an ideal situation, you would really think about and start planning for your exit when you start your business, but that's not realistic for most business owners because you're just trying to survive at, at that stage. So um, ideally, you would plan your exit over a five to 10 year time period. And the reason why that's important, because there are certain things that you can do to either grow the value of the business or ensure your successful exit that do take time. And you can do it in a shorter time period than that. And, and that happens all the time. But ideally, you would really start to plan and put put things into motion maybe five to 10 years out. Um, but the, the universal steps... Uh, are one is valuing your business. So we have to know what your business is worth from the get-go. And that's actually the first step. And then the second step is establishing your timeline and your goals. And that sort of speaks to your other question over what time period. Every business owner has a different timeline and they have a different, different priorities, different goals that they want to achieve with their exit. And then the third universal step is discovering your gap. And what that means is, once you take inventory of what your business is worth and you combine that with your other financial resources, you know, retirement accounts, real estate, et cetera, do you have enough to retire today uh, and exit your business today or do you have a gap? And so a lot of business owners, I think, are really, they kind of put their head in the sand. Um, they don't want to know. Having a gap is okay and it's normal. Most business owners have some gap. We just need to know how big the gap is uh, so that we can get to work on trying to close that gap. And then once you decide you do want to sell a business, even if it's like five years in the future, um, it, uh, do you deal with a business broker or what is the best way to get the best price when you're selling your business, even if it's you know, a bit off in the future? Yeah, so it depends on the size of the business. Most smaller businesses, I would say under $5, $10 million in, in uh, value, you would generally work with a business broker um, to do that. Now, a lot of business owners, they'll kind of match make on their own. You know, maybe there's a friend that they know is in the same industry and they just kind of do a private deal with that individual. Um, and that's, 
Usually not advisable because if the other person is smart, if the if the buyer is smart, they're going to bring their own team of attorneys uh, and and experts to the table. So we you want to you want to protect yourself and make sure that you get what your business is worth um, without any surprises later on down the road. Um, and then for a larger size business, usually uh, a mergers and acquisitions advisor or deal attorney, you know, a traditional investment banker type role uh, would be the person that you would bring in, in in that case. But a lot of it depends on the size of the business, the industry you're in, if, if you're in a growing industry that's going to be attractive. Um, and, and actually what what we do in the exit planning process is I don't actually care if you want to sell your business to an outsider and go that route, or if you want to transfer to a key employee or a family member, part of my job is to help you figure out based on your goals, what is the best path for, you know, that particular business owner. Yeah. In many cases, probably the children are not interested in taking over the business. They just want to get cashed out of it. Is, is that cause where there might be one child that's interested and others' ch- children not interested? How do you deal with the family dynamics in a case like that? <laughs> that is uh, an excellent question because it, it, it comes up so often. Um, so, yeah, you're and you're right. A lot of times children um, do not necessarily want to be involved in the business. Maybe they want to work there, but working there versus being an owner is two very different things. And they may also not necessarily have the skill set or, you know, the same kind of drive. Business owners, entrepreneurs, they're a very unique subset of, of people. And, um, you know, they tend to be very driven and they have, you know, certain characteristics that make them good entrepreneurs. And, and that's okay. Not everybody needs to have those characteristics. But we want to identify the right people and the ideal people to be our successor. And sometimes the challenge in a family business is that that next generation family member, uh, we want to set them up to succeed. And uh, if they're not a good fit for owning and running the business long term, maybe, you know, we want to consider some other options. So that's always challenging. And and as you mentioned, too, you, you know, you might have three children, one of which is involved in the business and two of which are not. How do you set things up and how do you do your estate planning and and transferring the value of the business and all of those things by making things, uh, you know, fair, so it doesn't have to be equal because there's a lot, it's hard to achieve equality among all three children when that's the case, because you might have a child, one child who works in the business, they've put blood, sweat, tears and, and, to, and helped grow this business. And so a lot of times it's very difficult to, um, you know, achieve equality among all children, but is we want to just be fair and help our clients to put together something that they feel is fair and something that where their spouse and their kids will actually continue talking with them and speaking to <laughs> them after they exit. So you're right in the middle of some pretty interesting situations there. Oh yeah, it's it's always and and I'm you know because I work with my father and he and I own this the True North jointly, you know, I, I totally understand the family dynamics issue, but yeah, it is, it's never easy. And the hardest part is actually, you know, once you kind of figure out what you want to do 
communication with the family members so that nobody's surprised. We don't want people to be surprised about what happens after it's too late to change it. So, but communication is tricky too, because we want to be careful about how we communicate and how we bring things up and who's all sitting at the table when we're talking about these issues. Yeah. Um, Okay. We have to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest for this half hour is Ashley Mitchell-Kay. She is the um, CEO of True North Retirement Advisors based near Portland, Oregon. You can find out more about what she does at her website, which is truenorthra.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. My guest this half hour is Ashley Mitchell-Kay. She is the president and CEO of True North Retirement Advisors based near Portland, Oregon. Her website, truenorthra.com. Welcome back to the show, Ashley. Thanks, Jordan. So one thing that's important for somebody selling their business is to value their business and get the most value. What are the steps that you can help people take to know what their business is worth? Yeah, so one of the things that we make available to anyone who wants it for free is a uh, valuation tool. And what it allows you to do is with eight basic pieces of information about your business. So this is revenue, pre-tax income, accounts payable, all things that you should have at your fingertips if your books are reasonably clean. You can go in and take those eight data points and get a really solid estimate of value um, in five minutes or less. So I, I, I always emphasize this because it's knowing what your business is worth is the key to getting unstuck and starting down this path of really getting serious about exiting your business. And they can get that at truenorthra.com, is that right? Yes, if you go to truenorthra.com forward slash value my business, the free checklist and unlimited access to the valuation tool are all right there. Very good. Okay, so I want to talk also about other retirement-related topics. One of the big ones is so-called RMDs, required minimum distributions. What are some of the big mistakes that retirees make when they're figuring out what their RMD should be? You know, one of the biggest mistakes that I sometimes see and I try to 
advise clients against is just the timing of the R- they're taking their RMD. So you have all year to take your RMD. You could take it at the beginning. You could take it at the end of the year. You could take it every single month. Most clients, what we advise them to do is wait until the end of the year. And I actually ran the numbers on this last year. And over time, because the market, most people's investment portfolio is going to grow in most years. And so chances are it's going to be worth more at the end of the year than it is at the beginning of the year. So whatever you take out, which is baked in at the beginning of the year, no matter what happens with your investments, if you wait until later in the year to take out, chances are you're going to be taking out a smaller percentage of your actual account value. And 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 that will help enhance your returns over the long run. So it's something that it's a small little nuanced thing that you may not think is a big deal, but it actually matters. If you if you take out your RMD every single year at the beginning of the year, you're probably going to have a lot less uh, in that account over your lifetime than you would if you waited. Another strategy is to uh, send money from RMDs to charity. Why does that make sense? So every dollar that you pull out of your IRA account or your 401k in the form of a RMD is taxable and it's added to your taxable income for the year. So a lot of times it could bump you up into a new tax bracket. It, it increases your income. It increases your potential taxes that you'll pay. But if you make donations to charities or your church directly from your IRA, you, that money is not added to your taxable income for the year. So it can be a really big uh, tax break that's way more efficient than taking your RMD but then turning around and writing a check out of your checking account to a, a charity. So if you're already taking RMDs and you're making charitable donations, I always suggest that clients look seriously at um, doing those do- donations directly from their IRA accounts. And then they would get a tax deduction if they itemized for the charitable contribution. Yeah, and that's a bit trickier because a lot of the the standard deduction rules have have changed. Yeah. Um, but if but they yeah, itemize, if they itemize, you're saying. Yeah, and uh, another thing that works is called charitable bunching. <laughs> it sounds a little odd, but um, sometimes what people can do to, to help them make itemizing more attractive now that the standardized deduction has gone up is to lump maybe three years worth of uh, donations into one year so that it increases that deduction amount and, and helps people qualify for the standard deduction. Yes. Okay. Uh, another thing is Social Security. Uh, a lot of people have questions about when they should take it. Many, many people take it the moment they can start getting it at 62. Some wait till 70. Some take it at the retirement age of 66 and change. What, how do you advise people on when they should start taking Social Security? That's a not always an easy question to answer because a lot of it depends on your um, you know, when you retire, how much you really need that income and whether or not your other sources of like your portfolio or rental income, whether or not you have other income sources. But in general, I've seen just in my experience of working with clients, the longer you wait, the better, generally because most people are living longer unless you have serious health problems. You know, most of us are going to live 
well into our 80s. Um, Even if you live into your early 80s, a lot of times you'll get more money from Social Security the later you take it. So... Um, it does vary based, you know, based on individual circumstances. But in general, what I see is if you can, if you can stand to wait, you know, until at least your full retirement age, but ideally closer to 68, 69, 70, then the likelihood that you'll maximize uh, what you extract from Social Security um, is, is probably much better. One reason people take it earlier is they're concerned about the viability and sustainability of Social Security. Do you think that's something people should worry about? As the baby boom keeps retiring and there are fewer work workers paying in than the past, are you concerned about that? I'm concerned about, I'm very concerned about it for me. <laughs> I'm 34. Uh, I, I don't know what Social Security is going to look like in 30 years. But I would say for someone in their late 50s, in early 60s, or someone who's, you know, making that decision because it's coming up very soon, I would not be concerned about it because if you look historically, um, I don't think they're going to pull the Social Security. I don't think the U.S. government is going to pull Social Security out from under you because they have this huge voting block of the baby boomers who are not going to be happy at whoever, whatever administration, whatever, you know, whatever, whoever's in office. If they do that, they're going to get voted out really quickly. And, and they know that. And no. so um, I, I just don't think it's a realistic assumption, although I do have clients all the time who take it as early as possible for that exact reason. And um, it's more, you know, they tend to be more paranoid um, and worried about that kind of stuff anyway. So sometimes there's no talking them out of it. But In about two minutes we have left, uh, there are some opportunities for Roth conversions. Just briefly tell us. What, what opportunities are there for doing Roth conversions these days? Yeah, I, I read an article a few months back that basically said this year and next year, while the tax cuts have, the tax cuts and Jobs Act has gone into effect, and while Trump is still in office because no one knows what's going to happen in 2020, it is a I think they called it a perfect storm for making a Roth conversion uh, because tax rates are lower for a lot of people, and they may go back up and could go up significantly, especially if you look at where tax rates are now versus historical norms. It makes a lot of sense um, for someone, especially if you're uh, maybe already retired and your income is lower, to look seriously at a Roth conversion. That's because when you convert to a Roth in the year you do it, it becomes income to you in that year. And you're saying tax rates are their lowest they've been in a long time. So the tax on that income in that year would be the lowest you've ever seen. Is that basically the reason? Exactly. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, so just kind of sum up, both for small business owners and people retirement planning, what kind of a difference would it make in people's lives to do what you're talking about as opposed to not planning for these kind of things? <laughs> well, as someone who uh, has a 30-point checklist for my own kid's birthday party, I cannot overemphasize the value of planning. Um, you know, pe- people who plan in advance, you're going to have the most options available to you, the most flexibility. And I think that's the real value of planning, whether it's planning for the exit from your business or planning for retirement, is you're going to have a lot more say-so and control and flexibility the more you plan and the more in advance that you plan. Terrific. Well, thanks so much. My guest this half hour has been Ashley Michike. 
She is the CEO at True North Retirement Advisors based near Portland, Oregon. You can find out more about her and her firm at her website, truenorthra.com. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Ashley. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.